Hey guys, it's uh, Constantine Polikov here in the studio, your host, for yet another episode of PR Sonalities. Today we have a special guest, the president of Intent Design Communications Consultancy, Ben Hagan. Thank you very much. Thanks for coming out. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. It's awesome to have you here. Today we're going to talk all things advertising, all things your personal journey in this crazy industry. Mm -hmm ever-changing industry and what I'd like to start with is I'd like to touch upon the very name that went into your firm we're talking about intent so why don't we go right into it and you tell me exactly how did this all start and how did you come up with the name well it's a very interesting story actually uh, because it's a full circle story so before my company was called intent it was called something else so before intent are we allowed to know yeah for sure <laughs> before intent it was just my name it was Hagen Design Inc um, and so when we decided to focus on the clients that we now have, uh, we knew we needed a new name. We, need, we knew we needed to take it away from being all about me right. and focusing on our clients and not focusing on ourselves. And so we changed the name from Hagen Design to Intent because what we do is work that only does good for the world. Um, so we work with nonprofits and charities, uh, only clients that have good intent. So that's where the like name intent comes from. And I guess that's also why you got your, your, uh, your domain name, right? Yes. So yes. you guys were lucky enough to score something that was right, you know, right on a home court there. Yeah, yeah. We, we actually, it was our second choice. What was our the first choice was work with intent. <laughs> work with intent. Because we do work with intent, uh, but someone else already had that. So we <laughs> went with for good intent. And it's really interesting because uh, people don't differentiate between our company name and our URL. So oftentimes, when I go to a meeting, they'll say we're working with for good intent when it's actually just intent, but it's okay. That's <laughs> but that's something to interest. It's interesting and something that's changed that now people think of companies as URLs as much as they think of them as a, as a, as a name in itself. So it's you know, kind of neat. That's huge. I mean, like I always t t uh, tell new entrepreneurs and new businesses, like think one step ahead. Think what, what's the simplest thing to search you by? It would technically mm -hmm. be your name, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But it's also very good to have your name be self-descriptive. Mm -hmm, if you mm -hmm. can describe what you do in the very name of what your service is, you already it's already a slam dunk. Like you don't have to exp spend that much time explaining what it, what is it about. Like by the very domain name itself, mm -hmm, I think it's already mm -hmm. giving away that vibe of the non-for-profit business, right? Yeah, absolutely. And yeah. and just just talking about the non-for-profit, like there is in advertising and design communication side of it. I'm sure there is different paths you mm -hmm. can take, right? Mm -hmm. So, mm -hmm. you come from uh, a different country. I do. I do. That country yeah. is England. England. I'm from England. Yeah. And I think I believe you're from Essex. Yes. That, that, that's, Essex. that's the very yeah, place yeah, you're yeah. from. That's where I'm from. Yeah. And so, being here in Canada, you, you've come a long way, mm -hmm. and you studied here. You studied. I studied in London, England. Studied in London, yeah. England. Yeah. You you had a little bit of time there. You came here to work. No, 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 no. I, uh, so I was, I was studying in England. I was in my last year of university and I met a Canadian girl. Ooh, so, love story. A love story. <laughs> well, kind of, sort of. Um, yeah, we totally fell in love and we're living together and all of that. And then um, she was expecting a child. So it was time to come home for her. And uh, she invited me to come and uh, I never looked back. We've been here ever since. So that was 2002. So that's uh, that was 17 years. Oh, well, yeah, I was 21 years old. That was the big move to so Canada. So it was a huge move for me. I didn't know anyone. I had no family here. Um, so it was a big change. But uh, it's been amazing. It's been amazing. You've come to Canada. And then at first, so it sounds like at first you really kind of started your own little practice, right? First you were Ben Hagon. And then you yeah. just kind of worked 
I'm gonna guess about yourself with a team of some sort. Yeah, that's right. Well, for first I had jobs. So, so in in my field specifically, you have to learn your trade. So I worked for I worked until 2009. So seven years. I worked in Toronto and then in a smaller city as well for different agencies and studios, learning my craft, getting a reputation for myself, um, winning awards and, and working with big clients. And then in 2009, I decided, I didn't really decide to have a company. I just decided I didn't want to work for a boss anymore. You want to freestyle, um, freelance a little bit. Yeah, yeah. And, and most, uh, a quote that always sticks with me um, that I heard years ago was, Creative people don't want to be the boss. They just don't want to have a boss. <laughs> and never could that have been truer for me. I didn't. I. I, I still don't think I'm necessarily a very good, good boss because I think I'm. I, I'm kind of too nice. But I. I don't want to have a boss. I don't want anyone to tell me what to do. So it's interesting because creative people they don't want anyone to tell them what to do, but they also don't really want to tell people what to do, which sometimes can pose a bit of an issue as a leader. But but I've pushed past it. So 2009, I started. Uh, I, I. I left my job. Started freelancing. And just, I guess, because of who I am, within six months, I had far too much work and I couldn't possibly do it all myself. And that's when I started building a team um, to service those clients. That, that very switch, right, from, from going, uh, working for somebody to switching to your, own, uh, to your own shop and then eventually starting to take on responsibility of being leader mm -hmm. and then taking on, uh, you know, talent mm -hmm. that can deliver quality of work that you're happy with mm -hmm. uh, you know quality of work that can impress your your uh, your customers that's which is typically what we always like to kind of drill down a little bit on you know this that, me that mental change when you realize you are you are you know exactly who you are mm -hmm. you have developed mm -hmm. the skills you've developed the craft that can really you know differentiate you from everybody else mm -hmm. um, that that mental composure that it takes to be able to step aside and say you know what this has been great. I I have what it takes to go off on my own. Um, what what thoughts were crossing your mind when that was happening? Because at that point you already had kids, from what I understand. Yes, yeah, yeah. yeah. You, had, you had a yeah, wife, had and a I'm wife, gonna yeah. guess you you mortgage. were you had a mortgage to pay. <laughs> yeah. So that that very yeah. switch. Um, so we would always talk about some of the golden um, you know rules of thumb to, to yeah. really watch when you're making that switch. And I always talk like talk about reserved. Mm -hmm. So the very first thing we always talk about is you wanna make sure you set yourself financially mm -hmm. well enough for that mm -hmm. change because for the moment that you, because people don't realize, but when you go to do business of uh, business for self kind of a gig, you are the sales department, mm -hmm. you are the creative, you're the fulfillment department, you're the accounting, mm -hmm. you're the legals, mm -hmm. you're the follow up, you're everything. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So to be able to do that and be able to get paid and not, you know, drain yourself completely of cash, mm -hmm. you have to have a certain reserve. Mm -hmm. That's one thing, right? Mm -hmm. Then the next thing, you got to have a lineup of gigs already created. Mm -hmm. What are some of the things that you had set yourself with to make sure that that was a successful transition? Exactly what you're talking about. So first of all, I have to acknowledge that I wasn't alone. My wife helped me. So Amazing. my wife, for the first few years, she really helped me. And so she helped fulfill some of those roles you were talking about, accounting, helping with the legal stuff. I had her support. But uh, it was a massive switch, and I was I was not prepared. I was I just was not prepared for it. I did build up a reserve. I saved six months salary. That's right. That's so, that's, that's so the golden rule. Six months minimum. <laughs> I wasn't doing it until I had six months. So at the time, that was a lot. That was a much smaller amount, but it was enough to get me through what inevitably will happen to anybody in a professional services industry: cash flow. Cash flow. I used every penny. And it wasn't that we weren't busy, it wasn't that we didn't have plenty of work, it's that by the time you start the project, 
you finish the project, you invoice the project, you collect the money is a very long period of time, can be yeah. up to four months, can be up to six months, can be up to a year sometimes. So I needed every penny of that money that I'd set aside just to keep the wheels turning. And then once we got over that, that, that period, then things were, were fine. It wasn't that there was ever an issue, but you absolutely need that reserve. It's, it's critical. You can't start a business without, without some kind of financial reserve. And the way I built it was freelancing. So I had a job which paid all the bills, and then in the evenings I'd work. So that took about two years of working every single night till 12 o'clock at night after the kids went to bed and, and, and saving up that money. But I wanted to do it, and I, and I knew it was the right future for, for our family, so I did it. Well, it's like, it's, it's like we always say, right? It's, it's all about doing something you're passionate about, mm -hmm. something you believe in, because a lot of the time, even you're clocking in that 12-hour day, you know, it, doesn't, it feels like work. But you feel happy doing it. Absolutely. Right? Absolutely. You put your kids to bed, you go upstairs, you know, you sit in your computer, you work away, you know that you have exactly what it takes to get to that next stage. You just gotta put in the work. You gotta, gotta put, put in, in the work. hours. Yeah, you've gotta put in the hours. Right. And you gotta be strategic about the way you do it too, because like you said, you know, three months of pay, four months of pay, five months of pay, you have to be you have to be aware of what's your absolute minimum cost of living is. Mm -hmm. So you know that it's covered and you gotta give yourself time. Mm -hmm. Because you can't put yourself into a position where you gotta go out there and sell and make money tomorrow because that's not really gonna happen. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, we're not machines. Mm -hmm. Although we like to believe to believe we are Kawhi Leonard sometimes, we can always shoot threes. Right? In the end of the day, you have to make sure that you give yourself a little bit of room. Mm -hmm. And if you give yourself six months, which mm -hmm. I think is a golden, golden mm -hmm. rule, like six mm -hmm. months of pay gives you just enough time. Mm -hmm. Because if in six months you could not get to the next you know, a set of receivables that's going to carry over for the next six months, then you may want to consider going back. Mm -hmm. Because then you, you know, maybe you didn't have a very good six months, or maybe you just didn't do as much as you should have done with it, and maybe this, this gig is not entirely cut out for you. But again, if you're passionate about it, if you really want to give it a shot, I think six months is a great place to start. I think it's really important to talk about that, Constantine, because people don't. Yeah. You know, when, when we look at investing and we look at the tech sector, Everybody seems to think that there's a golden ticket and, and you can just borrow money or you can, you can find some angel investor to just support your dreams. The vast majority of us don't have that luxury. You have to work and you have to put the time in. And, and I'll be honest, in my opinion, it's, to me it's better because you, then you're not on the hook and you don't owe all that money back to investors. Um, it's better to put the work in, save up, do it the bootstraps, right? The, right. The, old, the old bootstrapping method. It worked for me and I've seen it work multiple times. I will say also I'm very lucky because in the chosen field I don't need a lot of equipment, yeah. And I did I don't need I didn't need office space. I was just able to work like you said upstairs in a room yeah. um, to build to that point. Whereas some people in some industries they need an investment in equipment. So then it's a little different. Uh, equipment you, or space, inventory, right? inventory is a yeah. big one. Yeah. Uh, even just staff, like some businesses, like you said, like yours you were able to be self-sufficient, uh -huh. even though you probably uh -huh. had contracts for a few pieces of work there and there to, com to complement your overall design or you know whatever the project you were working on. You didn't need to have somebody going and pushing paper all day. You didn't no. need to go somebody in the back and flipping burgers to make the re restaurant run, right? So there is definitely something to be said about different types of industries. But I think if we're talking about the services industry, and that, that applies to anything from, you know, whether I'm selling you a mortgage or I'm selling you an advertising service, I think in those industries where you're not so much bound by the very, very basic rules of a standardized, you know, storefront business, where you are, where you are kind of mobile, the key is low, low cost yes. and reserve, and then just crazy amount of passion and drive to get you to the next 
cycle of receivables where you can now start considering once the cash flow is built up, once you are at that point where you know exactly where you're going to be from six months because you already have the next you know, row of money coming in, now you can spend a little bit more so you can push yourself a little bit more to go out and get more business. So you can start growing, right? Then it, that's something I wrestle with. So I'm by nature a conservative businessman. And because of this process, I think it's trained me to be conservative. Mm-hmm. And so I don't take on debt, I don't take on risk. And I think sometimes that can inhibit growth. Um, no, so in it's a way. kind of a balance. But it's, it's control, it's control, right? Yes. You, you, wanna, you wanna only grow in the way you are able to control it because mm-hmm. the second you lose control, the quality goes down, mm-hmm. the customer service go, goes down, the quality of work and the quality of customer service plummets because you can't physically give everybody as much attention if you only have 24 hours in a day. Correct. And if you can't expand your team, your, your firm, at the same pace as the business comes in, you know, inevitably you're going to have this moment where you're either gonna start pulling hair out of your head not knowing what to do next because there are all these priorities, or you're gonna have so much overhead that you don't know where to get the next set of money from, mm-hmm. right? So the control mm-hmm. growth is the way to go most mm-hmm. of the times. Mm-hmm. The times when you have investors is the time to go grow as large as you can, mm-hmm. because at that point you're just like betting, you know, on this one horse and you're saying, listen, we're just gonna dump as much money as we can on this, this has gotta work, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Eventually it's gonna balance mm-hmm. out the, the, the negative and positive cash flow. But if you're trying to control growth, do it smart. I think that is the way to do it. I had a really interesting experience in the second year of business. Um, so after we started the company and then we hired our first employee, which is something we should talk about because that changed everything. Yeah. Um, we landed a million dollar account. Boom. Yeah, you'd think. And I think as much as I'm very proud of the work and I'm very proud of the team that we put to, to deliver the work, I think it was a bad thing for my burgeoning business because it has never happened again. It was a complete one-off. A Bay Street law firm hired us to rebrand them nationally. And so we had to build a team of 10 people on the spot. Right, just like overnight. Just overnight, build a team of 10 <laughs> oh, people. Wow. I, had to, I had to call in old friends wow. and like build this team in my house. This was back in Ben Hagan Designs. This was in Hagan Designs. So not this was, intent This yet. is not intent because we're still working with for-profit companies. In my house, 10 people using my washroom. We had a new baby. Oh my God. To service oh this God. account. And then... And then it finished. Then the account finished. We finished. We did our work. But you have all the payroll. And then I'm looking around at all these faces, <laughs> sitting there waiting for work, waiting yeah. for their paychecks. Um, and I'm not saying I would do anything differently now, eight years later, nine years later, but it was certainly an interesting challenge to, to grow very, very quickly. In, uh, some, some design firms take 10 years to get to 10 people. I uh, bet. And then the next year it's finished. And so then what do you do? Um, and, and, and we wrote it. I wrote it out for another year or so and brought in some other large clients. But that's when I started questioning uh, the direction of the company uh, in terms of the work we we're doing, but also the direction in terms of staffing and size and all of those questions, that's which right. I think are critical for business owners. I think it's critical to understand what your comfort level is. Uh, there's there's um, there's a lot of focus on growth in our economy and in our, in, in our media about growth is successful and having bigger is better, right? And I don't believe that it is always better. Sometimes, and for some people, it is. Uh, people want to have massive empires and, 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 and make a ton of money, and that's what they're focused on. But not everybody is, is that way, and I don't think that everybody's cut from the same cloth. Um, and if you don't ask those questions, especially when you're younger, you know, I was at that time, I, was, I wasn't even 30 yet. Um, and so I was, you know, gung ho and still like a young buck, and I just wanted more, more, more. And then 
one day I remember thinking, I don't like this and I'm not happy here and I don't get to do the work anymore and I just feel like an HR manager. And that's when the period of, of inflection began and we started looking at what we're doing, who we're doing it for, how we're doing it and what impact it's having on us as, 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 um, as a couple at that time because my wife was still working in the business and also my relationships with my team and our clients and so we, we, we did a lot of, it was about a six month process to get us to, uh, the final output was intent, was changing the business. Very interesting. Mm -hmm. So it kind of, I guess, does take experience to really, you know, kind of roll up the sleeves and understand what it really takes to handle a million dollar account because mm -hmm. everybody's always chasing those big customers, oh, for sure. those big clients, yeah. right? But the one thing that comes with that million dollar account besides the work is the responsibility. Yes. Uh, not only the responsibility to the customer, but the responsibility to the team that's behind it. The responsibility mm -hmm. you have to your family for mm -hmm. the time that you take away from that. Responsibility to, you know, just, just the very simple things like that, that you don't take into account until you have to really, you have to really have a chance to experience it. And this is, like you said, where that self-evaluation comes mm -hmm. in, where you mm -hmm. have to start questioning whether or not this choice was right. Whether this, it must have been right in every sense because it seems to have propelled you into where you are today. But at the same time, it is it came with certain type of cost, right? Well, it was risky. Very risky. Very yeah. risky. So, so we had dabbled with nonprofit work. We had a couple of smaller. That was clients. before that. That was before the big account. No, no, no. So this is after. This after. is like this is like the aftermath of working with very large companies yeah. and, and for profit for companies. profit companies, Fortune five hundred companies, corporations, public, um, publicly listed, publicly traded companies, and you know the aftermath of that was that I wasn't happy. I wasn't happy with the work. I wasn't happy with some of the work that my clients were doing. Yeah. You know, we worked with Harvard in Boston on a, on a um, tobacco cessation campaign. And then sure enough, our biggest law firm was a representative for, for a tobacco company. So for me, there was huge moral issues with that. We had worked with a big construction company and they were doing things in Alberta that I just wasn't comfortable with. And mm. so you have to look at yourself in the mirror in the morning and say, I still know who I am and I still know what I believe in and can I make peace with the fact that we're producing projects that are talking about subject matter that we're uncomfortable with. And for me, and just for me, I wasn't comfortable and I, I, I won't judge anybody for their choices. Um, people have to pay the bills and keep the lights on and all those things but for me it wasn't comfortable. And so then became the process of shifting the client base from large corporate companies to nonprofits, and that took about 18 months. That you guys uh, completely re restructured your book of business? 100%. Wow. 100%. Wow. That's actually pretty short of a time. It, was, it happened much faster than we thought it would. Wow. It happened much faster. Yeah, as soon as company, as soon as nonprofits started hearing about our story um, and saw the quality of the work that we had produced, they were very interested. So, what, so the story was that you guys were pretty much just trying to focus on non-for-profit sector, right? And so the story was, was the we story? believed in it. The you story that? is that we believe in the work that public sector and nonprofits are doing. We, we believe in what the impact they have in their communities. We believe in the sincerity of the staff and we want to support them. And so when, and that's, that's, it's not, what I always say is you'll never be just an invoice to us. We care like about that. what you're doing. We care about the impact you're having and we want to support that and, 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 and help that whenever we can, as much as we can with the work that we do. And it just resonated with people and they and they and then on top of that the quality of our design work they were like we can't get this anywhere else at this at that time um we, we want to work with you guys 
And so it happened really quickly. That's amazing. <laughs> it happened like, really quickly. The you know the, the fact that you were able to you know figure out again what is it that you were comfortable with, what kind of business you wanted, and then go right after it. Yeah. And pursue it. That takes a lot of skill and a lot of perseverance. Mm-hmm. How does somebody who is looking for that one demographic, one kind of perfect customer that they want, mm-hmm. how does one just commit to that and, and search out more? I always say that like attracts like. Mm-hmm. So in business, if you specialize in something, you're going to attract that, um, particularly if you publicize it. So we stopped publicizing our for-profit work. We were still doing some because it, there was a transition period. But we stopped talking about it, we stopped publicizing it, and we only publicized the type of work that we thought would get us more of that type of work. I like that. Showcase it. Showcase what you want. Tell the world about what you want to get, and then it will come back to you. If you're doing it well, and if you're sincere. And that's what happened for us. We we just talked about the the public sector work, and the nonprofit work, and the charitable work. And some of the work was really interesting. And then it just it just started. Are you, are you allowed to talk about that about the work? The, yeah, the yeah, absolutely. What, when absolutely. you after you switched, just tell me some of the companies, some of the projects you guys were working on. Just well, yeah. After we switched, um, primarily healthcare, we did a lot of work with hospitals and hospital foundations. Um, so uh, our, one of our landmark projects, one of the turning points. You know, you look back over the years at the turning kind of yep. turning point projects, and a big one was the website for St Joseph's Healthcare in Hamilton. Ooh. Um, and so it was a. At the time, hospital websites were really bad. Um, they're not anymore. They're, 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 most of them have caught up. But in 2000, and this was 2014, uh, they were very unfunctional. Um, they just caused more anxiety. Whereas what should happen, you know, going to hospital is one of the most ang- anxiety-producing situations so you in your life. And you're going there and like, this is awful. I don't know what's going on. I can't find what I'm looking for. I can't even find parking instructions, all of those things. And we were able to do a beautiful project. And even now, I mean, it's five years on. I still think it's a beautiful website. It functions so well. And that was a real turning point for us. Um, right, maybe we should just bring it up on screen for a minute. Just take a look at what we have. Guys, so take a look. This is the St. Joseph's website. Uh, and this is from 2014. 2014 was when, when it might have launched in 2015, but we, we started working on it in 2014. The design was done, and it hasn't really changed very much since then. Uh, the feature that we're really most proud of is what we call the concierge. So if you look at the website, um, uh, the first thing you see is actually a real nurse, or Nurse Ruth, she's a registered nurse that works at St. Joe's, and she asks, how can I help you today? And so typically with websites, you have to self-navigate, right? You go to the menu, you go to the search bar, but Nurse Ruth actually asks you why, why you're there. You're looking for a job, you're looking Love for it. a service, Love you're it. looking for parking instructions. And then we call it like the choose your own adventure. Like if you remember the books when you're a kid and you... Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the same kind of way, and then we navigate the user through the website. And th- this was quite revolutionary in 2014, and we've, we've, re- we've reproduced it for St. Joseph's Healthcare in Toronto. Hamilton Health Sciences in, in Hamilton and several other large Ontario hospitals as well. So that was a big turning point. That was one of the big projects. And then the other big project, uh, again, that was a turning point was um, the branding project for Kitchener Public Library. And I think Brandon can pull that up on yeah, screen please. Uh, for, for our, our viewers. Um, the, it, was a, it was our first library branding project and, and uh, uh, I have a very special connection to libraries as a kid growing up in rural England. Um, my favorite day was when the big yellow library bus would pull into the pub park. Uh, we call it a car park. That's a thing. Lot. Yeah, yeah, it's a library bus. <laughs> That's amazing. And it goes to all the rural communities because there's no library. 
the, the closest library is about a half an hour drive away. So it would pull up and it would park at the pub and all the kids would ride up on their bikes and go in this musty, dusty uh, <laughs> library a bus. It's a bus, like amazing. a bus. And, amazing. and then you take your books out and then you, you have them for two weeks. When the bus comes back, you change them out. So that was very special to me as a kid. It really it opened up the world for me. Growing up in a small, tiny little village in England, I was able to access all this amazing literature and learn about the world and all these, all these different books. Um, so I was very passionate about libraries and having children, of course. And so when Kitchener Public Library um, approached us to do their branding, it was really thrilling. Um, and I think we did a beautiful job. We took their brand that was, um, it was done in 1978. Jesus Christ. <laughs> oh my God. And so in 2015, we were able to change it over. So they had it for, for, for a long 30 years? time. 40, 30 over years, 30 years. 40 over, years almost. Almost 40, yeah, 36 years. Wow. Yeah, so um, just bringing them into the 21st century. And then we've, uh, we've since rebranded three more major Ontario library networks and done other projects with libraries from uh, Vancouver all the way out on Vancouver Island and then locally as well. So that was a real turning point for us, a real um, sector speci uh, specific sector that we work with. Uh, and so those are two projects that really stand out. Very, very cool work. Yeah, it's really very, interesting. Very cool it's very I can rewarding. see that just you talking about it is you're being very passionate about just yeah. telling the story. Mm -hmm. So I'm sure mm -hmm. doing the work was mm -hmm. amazing. And you have to remember, I didn't design them. You were, team, you were the, you were the team a, lead. I was the creative director. Yeah. But I didn't fit, I didn't actually design those projects, my, my wonderful creative team. And actually on both those projects, the person that designed them is still is still with us and he's our senior art director. Should we should, so give him a shout out? Yeah, his name's James Bish and he's worked with Intense since 2011. Hey James. Um, and uh, he's amazing. He's absolutely amazing. We're very lucky to have him. A place to connect to learn, to belong. That's what we are. It's what we've always been. Oakville Public Library is a place of innovative and enriching experiences for people of all ages. We are growing and expanding to meet the needs of Oakville. Our online services, book depots, creation zone, and outreach are all about bringing the people of our community together. And so is our new brand. The logo represents people converging coming together here at the library. This concept is also present in the lines, which represent creativity and playfulness. The green and blue colors reference trees and water, honoring our past and celebrating our present. This is the new us, a new visual identity, as unique as Oakville itself. We are the heart of our community. We inspire creativity through books, digital media, engaging programs, and a wide range of meaningful services for lifelong learners. A welcoming space to bring people together. Caring, connection, community. You belong here. Now, I have a, even a further question about James. Was he your first employee? No, he wasn't. No, he wasn't, but, uh, but the way that business works I had known James since 2005. Oh, and wow. I'd actually worked with him at two previous studios before I started my own company. Amazing. So about two years into our firm, we had the opportunity to bring him over and he joined us in 2011. And so he's been with us for eight years. But I've worked with him on and off since 2005 or six. Mm -hmm. Well, listen, mm -hmm. if, if you have some, you know, somebody so valuable that, you know, you know can really deliver, 
you know, and whatever yeah. it takes, you got to get them on board. Yep. Yeah. And whatever so it's it takes. Been, it's been amazing. And we've worked on so many landmark projects together. It's so listen, cool. let's take a step back to what you're talking about, St. Joseph's Hospital, right, about the Kitchener uh, Library. Uh, let's talk about brand development because, you know, uh, somebody who is starting out a new business or they are just completely oblivious to the design world and the branding world, mm -hmm. um, your job is not only to deliver the product or the service, your job is also to guide and navigate that business owner or that group to develop that brand together because you can't just force that, you know, design and look down somebody's throat. You have right. to get them to appreciate it and get them involved and get to design that whole concept together. Right. So tell me a little bit about how does somebody in your position, somebody looking to, you know, already score the customer maybe even, and then try to help them develop that brand. How do you go about that? Well, <laughs> it's quite a process to do it right. Um, but to, to try and make it as simple as possible for the viewers to understand, what when an organization contacts my company to do their brand, what we are looking for is what makes them unique. It's what we call their why. I like that. Um, and so we have various activities that we employ to get to the why, because most people focus on the how. So most business owners want to focus on the how. How do we do it? Yeah, how do we do and what do we do, yeah. right? So yeah. they want it, they want to like, if, if you're a construction company, they want to have like a picture of a, of a building, right? But that's not, that's not what makes you different because every construction company builds buildings. So we uh, spend a great amount of time in what we call our listen phase. We have a five-step process, but the first step is called the listen phase because what we're doing essentially is just listening and we're trying to hear what makes an organization unique. Um, so for Kitchener, if we go back to Kitchener Public Library, what makes them unique is that they are a central hub for the community to come together. So if you look at their logo, you'll see an asterisk hub of, of uh, three shapes coming together because that's what makes them unique in their community. They're the only place that anyone of any social standing, of any demographic, of any race can come for free and participate and meet Beautiful. people and, and, and come together. It's, it's like a modern day community center. So that was uncovered during our listen phase where we, we run workshops, we interview stakeholders, we talk to the community, we spend time. Usually. Wow, that's a lot of work, that's right? Right before you even get before going. you do anything, incredible. You have to listen. You have to understand what the situation is. And one of the things that I love to do is, um, and bear in mind, because our many of our clients are like libraries and hospitals and those types of clients, I can go there, sort of incognito, and just sit quietly. Just listen. And so I just sit quietly and listen and observe and see what the vibe is. Um, and then from there, we enter, from listen, we go to think, our second phase is think, and that's where we're trying to uncover what makes them unique. How they do things differently to everyone else. Um, and I would, I would say for people to really think about that, because most business owners, most entrepreneurs, really wanna jump to what they do, their products and services, and that's oftentimes, unless you're very unique, for your average Joe on the street, they can't tell the difference between goes right one, over their head. Yeah, it goes right over their head. So between one, let's say personal trainer, let's just use that. One to the next, they're all kind of okay, so you offer personal training services, <laughs> but how do they do it differently? And so that's what we're trying to uncover. And, uh, and, and why do you do it too? And why, yeah, why you why what your motivation is. So if you look at the intent logo, for instance, um, that is designed very specifically to be bold and to be strong and to be uh, uh, robust because 
that what made us different from our competitors when we started Intent was we were professional, we were credible, we had a process, we weren't sort of these um, artsy, airy kind of designers who work with charities. We were solid, credible, and uh, dependable. And so that's why our logo is all caps, bold font, underlined. It's our why, it's what, it, what makes us different. I like that. Yeah. Very, very, yeah. very clear message. Yeah. Yeah. And so, I think I think with branding, your your message has to be as clear as it can. It can't be vague. No. I think the more vague your message is, the less it's understood. Right? The, the more you try to be big, the, the bigger the concept you, you grab, the harder it is to put to work. Mm -hmm. Versus, mm -hmm. you know, specifically telling with the three or the or the two or the one thing that really sets you apart, really tells you the why, is what can really kind of you know attract and, and get people's attention. As a business owner, I think a lot about what my audience's problem or challenge is. So as a design firm owner, I think about what my clients are struggling with. And then I think about how I can help that. And I think that that's key for entrepreneurs and business owners. It's not really about you. It's about who you're servicing. And so figure out what their pain point is, what your customer is struggling with, what makes them, what keeps them up at night, and talk about how you can help that. You can't help but be successful as long as you can follow up. Yeah. Um, but that's really how you need to think about it: is think about define the issue, define your audience, and then you can figure out how like you almost help like them. Re reverse engineer what your ideal customer is struggling with, and then just like capitalize on that, right? And you'll be successful. If yeah. you can do that, if you can solve what keeps them up at night, that's how you. That's how you find. I love success. that. I love that. That's that's a really nice little tip. Like if you if if you really think about it, and I, I even go back to like my work, right? Like I broker mortgages, and when I think about it, the the more we get straight to the very very reason why what keeps them at night, why why they're so worried, the the more likely they are to take the service, the more likely they are to be to be uh, happy with the service. And in the end of the day, I mean, that's kind of what drives the business back to, into your, through your front door, right? It's just happy customers, customers mm -hmm. that will mm -hmm. be able to relate to the experience and will tell everybody about it. it, it everybody about how much in-depth you got with their issue, how you got straight to the core of it, and you were able to resolve it and give them a solution. We've never had a sales team. That's interesting. Yeah, we've never had a sales team. We very rarely do any direct outreach. Our work comes from word of mouth. So exactly what you just said, we do good work, we treat people well, and it seems to work for our business from a referral standpoint. And that's pretty crazy to hear because you you are talking about like large, large, large mm -hmm. operations. Mm -hmm. Not just the like, you know, somebody may like you in a department that may have some say in, in deciding as to whether or not you are the one. Mm -hmm. But that is, that's the word of mouth is it's great, I'm sure, yeah. but it's the delivery, right? It's the delivery and the follow-up that probably comes with it. Yeah, we, I mean, I think it's, you have to treat people well. You have to treat people, whether it's your clients, your teammates, your vendors, your partners. If you treat people well, that comes back to you. Um, and that sounds like you do it to get something out of it, um, but it's just something I've observed. I, I can't, I mean, it, to me, it's important to treat people well, and it seems to work. It seems to come back. Um, and I'm surprised that I'm told so many times that that doesn't happen with other providers, they're not treated well. Uh, there's no follow up, like you say. There's no aftercare. There's no um, Christmas card. There's no. Yeah. There's 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 <laughs> there's none of that. And and people notice. You got to treat people well because if you don't, again, looking looking at yourself in the mirror in the morning as you're getting ready, 
it's hard when you go around not treating people well. Um, and, the, and, and when you treat people well, they do the same thing right back to relationships, right? Relationships like, are everything. Relationships with, uh, with the stakeholders, with the employees that will spread the word of how great the organization is, how great it is to be part of this team. Right, like I, I think I've seen somebody even post something on LinkedIn with with you or with some somebody on your team talking about how great they feel being part of this. Mm -hmm. Right, and it's mm -hmm. like when you see that in any organization, you can tell that the integrity is there. You can you can tell this is a genuine team of people that really likes each other and likes mm -hmm. doing what mm -hmm. they do, mm -hmm. and that really kind of you know hits home for me. Like with any kind of service provider, if I go into a store and I can see people having fun, yeah, I can see them just like enjoying the moment during the process. I want to work with those yeah. people. Now, yeah. I can really, I can really get that energy, that positive energy into what I'm doing with our project together, and then the result is just ten times better. Mm -hmm. Agreed. All right. So it's like, like you said, like every single step of the way. Not it comes from the very, very lowest level, just from the very, very way you talk to your own, uh, your own staff, your own employees, your own team, and all the way to the very top of the customer that you're dealing with. Right. It comes from the low and all the way to the very top. Um, let's talk a little bit about something else. So it's 2019. Mm -hmm. You had years, years of experience being in this industry. Mm -hmm. You have seen the corporate side of it, mm -hmm. the personal uh, freelance side of it, the bigger team, the, the smaller team. What do you do differently in 2019? Like We talked a little bit about some of the things, but what is the one differentiating factor that sets your creative and your process and your delivery and your, and your product apart from everybody else? That's a very good question. Um, we're very, very busy all the time. So <laughs> I don't have a lot of time to reflect on, on uh, what, what sets us apart, why we're different. I believe, I'd like to believe it's our process. I'd like to believe that people want process, they want to be taken care of. They want to know that there's a defined roadmap on any given project. And some of our clients, some of our projects are quite large and I think it's very reassuring to clients to say, okay, well, I'm working with this creative group. They're a creative group of people. Um, they're, they're, they're not a large company, but they have a defined process, and I can take comfort in, in the fact that it's, it's proven and it's predictable, and that seems to give people comfort in 2019. There's so much going on. I think we all feel it. I think That's we right. all feel how busy everybody is and how much distractions there are and how bad traffic is and all of all of these we feel it we feel the cuts we feel the political climate so when someone comes in and they're calm and they're professional and they're kind it seems to give people a lot of comfort and they say okay we're in good hands here we're safe my job is safe my project is safe uh, i can trust these people it uh, yeah and, and I think there's a real lack of trust in 2019 just with everything that's going on. Well, there's so much flashy stuff out there, right? Like everybody is yeah. flashing all the best of their achievements, but when you really dig down to it, so a lot of the time it's not really what it is. So the work itself hasn't changed a great deal. Um, the work we're doing isn't that different from it was uh, five years ago, but the way we deliver it is, is certainly differently. Would you mind just sharing? You talked about this process, mm -hmm. this multiple-step process. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I am... I love learning about that. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Would you mind sharing a little bit about how does that process work from step one to step yeah. five? five is yeah. It? 
Yeah, so we, we've distilled it. We call it the get heard process because <laughs> yeah, we want you to be heard and then we want your, your audiences to hear the work once it's okay, done. Okay, let's, get, let's, let's uh, get it going. So, it, so it's step one is listen, which we already talked about. So the listen process, which is, which is what people call discovery, research or discovery, a lot of consulting and listening and workshops and those interviews, those types of things. Step two is the thinking phase. So that's where we think and we think deeply about our clients challenges and their projects and, and, and think about how we can help them. Step three is design. So that's where we apply our creative work and come up with many options uh, for any given project. Step four is discuss. So that's where we talk to our clients and we do a lot of stakeholder engagement. We, we work a lot with boards of directors, of course, because of the nonprofit. Uh, we do public focus groups. Discuss is a big phase. So you guys do a lot of research above the, after the creative is already done. The creative is only one step out of the five. Oh, wow. Right. So then you have to, after you, so how many iterations do you typically work with a customer through? Uh, the, the iteration process isn't usually that large uh, for us just because our process is so thorough. By the time we get to the design phase, mm. a lot of decisions have already been made. So we will do a few options for them and then usually just a couple rounds of iterations on any given project because we already know that's what we're amazing. doing and we're all on the same page. That, that's, that just tells me that the very first few steps are that detailed, that the, very very, detailed. That the execution is just like, we, you ought to know what it is. And I don't mean to downplay the execution because I have amazing award-winning nationally hey, recognized designers. That's what it so, takes. Like, that's what it takes. They execute amazingly. And there are outliers, but for the vast majority of our clients, there isn't that much revisions. Amazing. So then once our clients are happy with the work in the discuss phase, we'll then do a lot of focus groups, public consultation, get buy-in because it's very important in public sector to have, to have buy-in. And then the last phase is do. So that's where we execute. We, we finish the, the, the videos, or we program the websites, or we print the brochures. That's the do phase. So what determines the length of this process? Because I'm going to guess it sounds like this could be taking months. Oh, yes. This takes months upon months yes, upon months. Because most of our projects are large. So they're brands, they're websites, they're, they're large integrated campaigns. Um, and so they do take months. Um, uh, usually the listen phase is about six weeks. The think phase oh, is wow. about four weeks. Wow. Design three to four. And so is the, even the very first, so are you involved in the, all the five steps of the project? Like you, sometimes, sometimes. That's yeah. a lot, that's sometimes, a, you yeah. know, a lot of work. Yeah, so, so project management is key. <laughs> yeah, it sounds like there's just so much going on, right? Yeah. So in, in your team right now, let's just talk a little bit about the team. I think I may be jumping a little bit ahead of us, but let's just talk a little bit about mm -hmm. the team. Mm -hmm. uh, the team that we have today, I, I believe, your wife, Crystal, right? Mm -hmm. She was on the team earlier. She, she is not as much not, anymore. No, she's, she's, she's our director of operations. She's a partner in the business. Oh, amazing. Um, but, uh, but, but she doesn't physically produce uh, anything very much anymore. Um, but we have, so we have, a, we have a dedicated project manager. Mm -hmm. And so she keeps us all Up on track date. and keeps That's everything right. you need that. balanced. So it's all about balance. So when you have, say, 30 projects you're working on uh, among our team, we all, it's all about balancing deliverables and expectations. And, um, and so that's her role. One, uh, one project manager? One project. Well, wow. plus me. So okay, we, so we divvy it up. Yeah, we divvy <laughs> it up. Uh, I have three designers, uh, three designers that work on our projects all the time, two developers that work on, on web development. And then we bring in extra experts as, as needed on an as needed basis. To, so to that sounds like clients. about what, about seven? Six or seven, yeah. Six, seven Six people? Six or seven, yeah, on any given day. And then at, at, whenever you were handling those million dollar profit for, for profit accounts, how many was there? Twelve. We had 12. That was almost double. Yeah, almost double where we're at today. Double yeah. the work, yeah. double the supervision. Yeah. Double the responsibilities. Yeah. And with no, with no real project manager. I, that was all going through me. Jesus. So that was a lot. Yeah. That, that is a lot. Yeah. Uh, 
So now there is some very clear separation, right? So there is you who is in charge of handling the projects together with your partner there. Mm -hmm. And then we have the three creatives and a couple of people who are doing all the, I guess, the development, development work, development, right? Yeah. Uh, and what kind of other creatives would you have, like? What other types of consultants would you ever introduce? Uh, strategists, strategists, uh, uh, researchers, maybe researchers, uh, right. data analysts, data analysts, um, also management consultants, um, and anybody anybody outside of the creative execution uh, may be needed. Yeah, very cool. So yeah. there's like really, it's quite extensive. I guess this is the this is the model right now, right? It's, mm -hmm. It used to be different. Like I'm mm -hmm. sure mm -hmm. in 2000s when you're working for the larger firms. You know, the, I think the expectation was that this firm had everybody on staff, yes. and there was yes. like researchers and yes. writers and this yes. and that. I think the model has changed, yeah. right? So let's talk a little bit about that. From where you were 20 years ago when you were entering the industry to where you are today, uh, I mean, like it sounds like a like a completely different field. It is completely different. It is completely different. So you're absolutely right. Um, when I started in the business, everybody had bricks and mortar locations. They had architecture, architect design spaces, all very flashy. The expectation was everybody was on staff. Mm. You had all of these people doing all of this stuff. Now um, the model is much more, I, I say it's more like a, a film, a movie model where you build teams to service projects. You bring like in experts and then once the project is finished, the team disbands until the next one. Um, and so, so we do that uh, a lot. We have our core team, but then we, we add to it to service our clients. Amazing. Yeah. Amazing. So it's like, again, uh, no point of being stuck in the 90s or 2000s, no. right? No. Always, if you're, especially if you're developing a new business, like adopt all the latest practices. This sounds like the right practice to adopt. Yeah, it's a, it's a network model and it's, it enables you to be more fluid. It makes you, enables you to be more nimble when it comes to opportunities or changes or whatever you want to make. Whereas there are drawbacks. There are drawbacks to it. Because if you do pick up a little bit too much. Well, it's right? the gig economy. So, so my concern with it is what happens to people that can't ever get a salary job. You know, because we're moving into this gig economy for a business owner like myself. It's very attractive. Um, you pay the person more than you would pay a salaried employee, so that's good for the for the person. But there's no security, there's no benefits, there's no there's no RSPs, there's none of that. So it's I know that that's the current <coughs> reality, but it's certainly something that I wrestle with. You know what? I will say something about this. Um, like you know, um, there is something to be said about somebody going into the economy taking a risk. Mm -hmm. Right, taking a risk that they may not have that gig tomorrow, taking a risk that you know maybe they'll be paid today and then they won't find one for quite some time and then they have to figure out how to wrestle with that. But you know, at the same time, I will say something else, like any business is susceptible to changes and being part of a thriving business as a contractor to me is an incredible experience and probably mm -hmm. is a lot more secure than being part of a you know, of an organization that may be rotting from the inside and mm -hmm. you're not, not seeing a lot of it. And there is, I just, you know, as much as it is considered that being salaried and being employed, it provides a lot more security, um, you know, with so much volatility in the market, it not almost, not always is the case. No, and I think it's an opportunity. I think, I think that, con that giggers or contractors need to think of it as an opportunity. You could make a lot more money. But you gotta be smart about it. You gotta be smart. You've gotta right. you've gotta treat yourself as a business. Yeah. So you have to you have to treat your yourself as an individual business who's servicing clients. And so my business is their client. And then what they do with that business is their business. Um, they can 
choose to work at night. They can choose whenever they want to work. They can choose to get their own health plan. They can choose to invest I was just about themselves. to say, yeah. There, there are options for people who make the right choices. Because at the end of the day, like I can be a contractor to you tomorrow and I can paint my own EI, I can paint Absolutely. my own CFP, I can have my own insurance plan and, and my own group's benefits plan if I want to. It's a choice. I'm making more money, so I should technically be able to spend a little bit more money for the things. It's just that I think the other problem with contractors and, and entrepreneurs is that we don't think of it that way when mm-hmm. we start. With the very first business you start, I mean, think about yourself in those years, right? Mm-hmm. Did you, did you that, think about no. you know those things like no. having having a life insurance, having group no. benefits, having CFP contributions to the level that you like them to be because you want to have a certain type of pension when you retire? Like you don't think of these things when you first enter, and I think that partially it's the way that we. That, that we treat entrepreneurship. You know, we treat it as, as this hero gig where you mm-hmm. go out there and you're gonna make all this money, it's not mm-hmm. gonna matter. Mm-hmm. It's just not gonna matter. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. You're gonna make so much money, it's just, by the time yeah. that it's gonna no, become a problem, you won't ever have to worry about it. Mm-hmm. But in reality, it is something that we may even have to, we may even should be introducing in college or university. Yes, I agree. As you're learning about this, part of your economics or part of your business class should be, hey, if you're a contractor, some of the things you should watch for are these that you're not going to get because you're no longer a salaried employee. You're not longer working for some street on Bay, uh, some some uh, company on Bay Street. You are given an opportunity to be your own thing, to be your own business. So run it as one. Mm-hmm. Figure out some of the things that you really matter to you, and make sure you hit those home every time. In the business world, there's this there's this selling mentality. So you know you grow your business to a certain point, and then someone will come and buy it. That's right. I think the dream. <laughs> I think a lot of people that's what they think will happen and they can just cash out. And so they don't need to think about all that. But I would challenge most people like myself running design companies or advertising agencies that aren't 500 people large to say, how many people have you ever heard of that this has happened to? Because I don't know anyone. So I gave up the dream of someone's gonna swoop in and give me $5 million (laughs) for my company years and years ago. But that's what I started out with. If I grow it to a certain size, someone will come in and and make me a millionaire overnight. It's not realistic. And if it happens, great. <laughs> great, then cash hey. out and move to Costa Rica. But <laughs> I don't think it's a smart plan. I think the smart plan is to be more considered about what exactly the things you talked about. And I think that we are doing our students a disservice by not talking about it. It's that old thing where, you know, my, my, in the school system, people complain, you know, when will I ever use um, calculus? But I don't know how to write a check. And, and, and we're not taught these practical money skills, but we're taught abstract mathematics. It's kind of the same concept, just applied to entrepreneurship. Yeah, it's definitely it's definitely a whole, right? Like it's just such a. There's a lot of these things are just not. Be, they're considered to be understood. It's just understood that you're supposed to know these things. It's understood you know how to file yeah. taxes. Yeah, yeah. It's understood that you should know how to write a check, but in reality, like a lot of us don't have to write that very first check until they you know move out out of the house and mm-hmm. then they finally are on their own. Mm-hmm. And it's just uh, it, it's it's something we should really improve on and. Hopefully there is the next set of government sitting there watching this show, I hope, <laughs> they're taking notes on what to improve. Um, but let's, let's carry on. So we talked a little bit about the team. Mm-hmm. I think that was very, very cool of you to share it, how you run, how you run your own practice. Talking about personal management style, right? So you kind of touched a little bit upon that. Um, Somebody who is starting out fresh, they've never had a team before. Mm-hmm, so mm-hmm, like I, you know, I whenever when I had my very first project, actually my very first project was in construction, and I didn't really know exactly how to properly, you know, manage people, how to properly manage mm-hmm. time. You make some mistakes, you learn from them. Uh, but if you had to give your management style like a template, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. If you are taking on a project, it's your very first project. Here is a few things you should watch for. Here's how I do it now, or here's how I did it before, and here's what I've learned from it. 
What would you share about that? I, I would share that I've learned a great deal <laughs> over ten years of over ten years of managing, because you know what what I found was when I started the business, I just sort of mimicked the people that I worked for, okay. you know, and and without a lot of self analysis of did I like working for that person, what did they do well, what did they not do well, I just sort of took their approach as a template, and it didn't work for me. Um, I had to develop my own style of how I work with people, and. How I manage and lead a team, and so what I've what I've done over the last five years or so is develop that develop that style, and it really starts before you even have people. The, okay. The biggest tip I would give to anybody starting out in business or thinking about growing a team is the most important thing is the hire. Who who you bring in is going to you can't you can't manage a you can't manage the wrong person. You can't manage your way out of hiring the wrong person. You have to hire the right person, and then, and then you can manage them to 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 deliver in the way that you want to. So that's so important. Um, and I always hire based on character. It's always do I think that this person fits our 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 goals, fits our um, our values is, is really important. And so I've built an amazing team of people that I. Can go away for three weeks, and I know when I come back, the business is going to be that's, in that's as how good you know, place. That's how you know the business yeah. is right. I trust them. I trust them, and 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 I think they feel that trust, and so it gives them a lot of confidence. Um, I what I try and do with my team, um, they're all senior. I don't have any junior people working for me, so that uh, presents a different set of challenges, sort of from a training standpoint. Everybody that works for me um, is is expert. They're experts. And absolutely, I give them pointers and give them tips if I see things that can be improved upon. But for the most part, they're professionally executing, so Incredible. that really, really helps. Amazing. But what I do in terms of managing them is um, clarity. You just have to be clear with people. This is my expectation. This is what needs to get done. This is when it needs to get done by. And now I'm going to leave you alone to do it. And I like then, that. And then they do it. And if they don't do it, because sometimes people don't do it. Sometimes people have a bad day or they have a situation. Then you have to discuss it. With clarity, with kindness, and 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 then and then let people respond. The challenge I think in business is that when you own your own business, uh, you feel a tremendous sense of control. Uh, you want to control ownership. everything. Ownership. ownership. You want to control everything. You want to mold it in your own uh, image, and that doesn't really work. <laughs> you have to let people be excellent, and you can't let they won't be excellent if you micromanage them. So that's something I've learned. I've learned to hire good people. Leave them alone to do their work that they want to do, um, and 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 encourage them to be the best that they can be, and it works. It's it's working very very well. I'm very pleased with the team, and and it, and and that's kind of my my mindset. Now I will say that it's not necessarily natural. Um, I have to check myself all the time. You, we have to be honest about these things, I, and I, I'm honest with my team. I believe it. You know, I have to check myself. I have to check myself to not micromanage, to not bother them, to not constantly check in, to not constantly say, "Where is this? Where is this at?" And can you show me something? Can I see it? And where? What are you doing today? I have to check myself, um, especially when you have too many coffees. <laughs> <laughs> you gotta lie. You gotta, yeah, so you Start gotta watch it. around right? the office, checking into every door, be like, "Are you, are you doing anything?" Okay, you're all okay. Good, good, um, good, good. <laughs> so, leave people alone, but you have to be clear. You can't just leave them to to flounder. 
be clear about what you want from them, set the expectations, what you want, when you want it, and how you want it done, and then let them do it. You should hire experts and professionals, and if they are, then they'll know what to do. You know, that, that, that really resonates as well. Like, I, I, know, um, I know I've seen different management styles I've seen it done the way you're like mm-hmm. what you're saying you're micromanaging everybody. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I've seen people in the middle of a meeting because they heard somebody across the hallway talk to talk, talk to one of their uh, one of their employees was talking on the phone and was taking a little bit too time mm-hmm. too much time to find out about what this customer had for lunch last you know mm-hmm. last night. Mm-hmm. And it just like the guy just you know jumped up, ran across the floor, told to put the phone down and said I don't pay you. Yeah. To you know, to do yeah. that on the phone, get back yeah. to work. Yeah. Like it just, it just, yeah. it's kind of really sets off the wrong type of idea for me. It's not the kind of an office I want to be, and not the kind of an office I would ever want to anybody to work in, to be honest with you. And then you know, and then you see offices where it's a lot, a lot more hands off. Mm-hmm. You have everybody right where they are because they deserve that place. They That's deserve right. to be in your office because they've already, you know, they've already proven themselves. They're trustworthy. They're they're excellent. What they do, they're talented. They're mm-hmm. professional. They're timely, and if all those qualities have already shown themselves at least once, mm-hmm. I should have the ability to just leave you where you are, mm-hmm. let you do the work. You know, you gotta get up and do something. You want to take a twenty-minute break. Listen, as long as it achieves the same result, as long as it's the ultimate result, which is the positive result, I don't really care how you do it. You know, mm-hmm. you can spend 20 minutes taking a lunch and 10 minutes doing the work, but as long as the work is as good as it would have been if you spent 20 minutes doing it, listen, that's even more efficient to me. You should be able to do that. And if you can do that much in 10 minutes, well, guess what? Maybe you're worth more, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Maybe, maybe in that sense, you've developed that far ahead that I don't, maybe I should give you, giving you more responsibilities and more, you know, more work and maybe you should be getting paid more as well because ultimately it all comes down to efficiency and if we all progress, and I can see that progress, and you can see that progress, and we're all on the same page, well, that's, that's, that's ultimately what everybody, I think, wants to see within the workplace. Nobody wants to be stuck behind a desk, being told what to do, micromanaged every step mm-hmm. of the way, to not even ever be able to shine mm-hmm. the way they mm-hmm. should. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You should be able to shine in your office. And if you're not in an atmosphere where that's possible, it just isn't the right place to be in. I don't understand people that start businesses to be mean to people. <laughs> I don't get it. I just don't get that. I mean, like for me, if you're not trying to lift your team up and you're not trying to improve their lives either financially or through the work or just through interpersonal relationships, like even just to get out of business. Get out of business. Go go work as a prison guard or something. Like don't it, it doesn't make sense to me. It doesn't make sense to me and it does I don't understand how somebody who leaves a meeting to go scream at somebody Finding when, that more important. When that person, and I'll assume it was a man. It was. <laughs> uh, when that person drives home, is he in a good place? Is he happy? Or is he pissed off? And I bet probably, you he's Probably still thinking off. what's going on at the office that's going not the way he planned to. I'll tell you an anecdote. Back okay. from the days before nonprofit. Please. I learned very early on in my business that millionaires are miserable. So I worked with a very large company who shall remain nameless, I won't even say the sector. <laughs> and I worked with the, the CEO. The CEO's salary was over $2 million a year before bonus. Wow. So some years he was probably taking home about six, seven, eight million pre-tax. So that makes him, in my books, a millionaire. Wow. He was one of the most miserable people I've ever met. He was very nice to me, but he was miserable, I could tell, and he was mean to his staff, and no one liked him. 
So money doesn't buy happiness in that sense. Um, so I learned not to chase money, to not consider myself, uh, want, want to be like those Fortune 500 CEOs, because at the end of the day, that's not what motivates me personally. And I don't think that making people's lives miserable is worth, is worth it. it to, me, to me, it didn't make this person happy. It didn't buy him more time with his family. It didn't give him more time to pursue his interests. It just became a self-fulfilling prophecy and it just, it was a vicious cycle. Uh, people left, people were unhappy, people didn't do their work well, they didn't execute their projects. It do, it, in my experience, as it sounds like in yours, the micromanagement method in a service industry just doesn't seem to work. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, I don't know if I have all the answers. I will say that it's not all, um, it's not all, uh, what do they call it, rainbows and lollipops. You know, there Absolutely. are issues, things happen, Absolutely. especially when you're hands off. People, what we say, go down blind alleys or they, or they misstep or they have something going on in their lives. Um, but you just talk to them as human beings. Okay, Figure let's out what it talk. is. Yeah. Let's talk. What's going on, man? Like, you're not, you're not executing in the way that you normally do. Can we talk about this? And talk to them on the level. Yes, there's a hierarchy with work. Yes, I push the button that accepts the payroll request. <laughs> Come on, we can still be human beings and talk to them. But all of these things for entrepreneurs are probably not things they consider when they're thinking about going out on their own. This is probably some years down the road, but maybe like me, within six months, you've got employees looking at you. And so there are things you need to think about, um, especially creative people who don't really want to tell people what to do, but they don't want to be told what to do. These are things you need to think about and think about what's going to make you happy at the end of the day and what's going to help grow your business. You know, it's funny that you say these things, like you're talking about this, somebody who is such so high up there and still feels rather miserable being in a position they're in. We had another guest, uh, we had David Foy, who was director for, who is a director for, uh, they're, they're just recently rebranded Junction 59. Mm. And he was talking about some of the, you know, some of the support groups you've gone into, like years back with other CEOs of other large firms. And he was talking about how a lot of them really and truly just felt miserable, yeah, and, miserable. and helpless. Yeah. Because there's so much mm -hmm. pressure, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. right? There's so much pressure. There's all these deadlines and all mm -hmm. this pressure and all these people and all these employees and mm -hmm. the stakeholders. And, you know, and then, you know, you're never home and then you, mm -hmm. the family struggles and mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. all the other avenues of your life also start to fall apart and crumble. And, um, you know, no matter how much money you make in the end of the day, when you're at that, at that kind of level of stress, I don't even know if it's really worth it. I had an interesting conversation with a friend and he was telling me he didn't want to win the lottery. Um, <laughs> and he's a dear friend of mine. And what I, was trying to con what I was trying to convey to him is that people don't want the money. When you win the lottery, it's not the money people want. Is the money win. is abstract. It's the win. It's the freedom. Oh, the freedom. It's the freedom to do what they want, when they want, as they please. That's what people really want, I think, is people want freedom in their lives. They want to take trips. They want to buy, if they want to buy a car, just go buy the car. That's freedom. It's not about money. I like that. And so I, I, I said to him, I said, people don't want $10 million. They just don't want to have to go to work tomorrow. They want to do, to choose what they want to do every single day. And so I think that that realization that I had a couple years ago has really um, helped my business to know that I'm not expecting to get rich from my business, but I am hoping that it buys me certain freedoms to go train jujitsu or uh, take trips to Costa Rica and, and do these things that hopefully I can set my business up so that I can have some freedom in my time and my team can have freedom in, in their time as well. And also have fun while you're doing it, right? Totally.
I because ultimately, I don't think anybody goes into business because they just want to make all the, I mean, probably some do. <laughs> but you probably could go to business to make all the money in the world, but in the end of the day, you will be miserable. If you're not doing, if, if the very action, the very act of what you're doing is not enjoyable. I, I mean, money, money is abstract, right? So people say, you know, I want to be rich. But what does that mean? I think it means that they can do whatever they want. That's right. I think that's what they want. And people want to do whatever they and want. And if you can do whatever you want and still get paid, isn't that the ultimate freedom? I think so. <laughs> I think so. <laughs> All right, we're going to get to uh, a couple of last questions for the show. Um, one of the things, the things I wanted to bring up is how do you conduct outreach or advertising when dealing with non nonprofits? That's there's, one of the closing questions I had. So there's three, there's three, th three activities we do. Uh, we do spend a little bit of money with Google Ads. Mm -hmm. um, so for anybody that's thinking of starting a business or, or running a business, Google advertising is a very uh, efficient, um, cost-effective way of putting yourself out there. Um, so just a little bit, a few hundred dollars a month, we do that, and so that just boosts our our search results, results and, and then people click through our website. And so smaller work comes through that. Typically, it's kind of smaller work. People who are thinking about doing a large brand or or a campaign don't tend to just Google it. Then the second thing we do is what we call uh, the RFP process. So in as I think there's a, there's an assumption that uh, in in the nonprofit and public sector world it's all a bit sort of loosey goosey and and you know it's like the gravy train right people talk about the gravy train but they're far more regulated I and bet. accountable. I bet. I was about for, to say that. Yeah, because it's public money, so um, we call it the procurement process. And there's lots of online um, uh, portals that we have to pay to be a member of, and we download publicly posted oh, wow. RFPs, and then we submit proposals and go through a very rigorous process and that's how we get the large projects hmm. and then the last uh, the last thing is just word of mouth word we of do, mouth, we do good work we treat people well and we get a ton of referrals uh, uh, from from colleagues or uh, the thing I've noticed recently is uh, uh, directors on boards are telling uh, their marketing person to contact us so I don't know how they know about us probably just reputation reputation yeah. so yeah combination of word of mouth uh, the official RFP process and a little bit of Google advertising and is that's how we do it. and that's primarily what you've been doing since you started you've changed a lot of that yeah that yeah no 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 that's, that's, been, the, that's that, been really the that's formula, been, right? I mean Google ads are the last few years that's a newer because they didn't exist yeah, <laughs> not the same capacity. Yeah, uh, uh, but we've never had, like I said, we've never had a sales team uh, besides myself. I'm kind of like a one-man sales team. We don't go and do like sales pitches. We don't try and book meetings or call people up or, or do any of that. That's incredible. That that you yeah. have, if you have that much work coming in from reputation and the work that you get, the systematic you know, procurement of business that you guys do, that is actually very impressive. Thank you. If you can maintain the pipeline without you know, spending too, much, too many marketing dollars and being that efficient, you know that that is a great setup. I it's see. A great setup. That's my job. So my job is to be the one man um, sort of system, applying that systematically. Yeah. And then the other part of my job is just taking care of everyone and the business. Taking care of the business. Just I mean, care. Yeah. As 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 a president of the organization, you know, you are the leadership. You are the fallback. You are the counsel. You're mm -hmm. the you're everything there to help the team succeed. You're just not the arms and hands to actually do it. Yes, that's and right. And that's and that's good. That's good in a lot of ways. Like you said, I know that you said that you miss a little bit of the actual hands-on yep, work. Yeah, yeah. And everybody does. Everybody does. When you yep. step away from the very craft that you know got you there. Yes. But I think uh, you know having the power of having that kind of an incredible talented team to do the work, to be your arms, to be your legs, to get that work done incredibly well, 
is uh, must be very rewarding. It is, and you know, I've made peace with it. I used to struggle with it, <laughs> but the way I made peace with it is I hired better designers than I am. So Love that, it. That's so the that way was, to do it. You, uh, just, yeah. you, just, you just hire better talent. Yeah. And then you have no excuse. You're like, hey, I, at this point, I might as well just let you yeah. handle my it. Team, my team are better than I am. So <laughs> yeah, that's great. That's amazing. Uh, ben, as a tradition, as a tradition in our show, we like to give our guest the floor and let you give, let's say, two or three tips. Two or three tips to the young entrepreneur, young advertising, uh, next advertising guru, you know, hand on maybe somebody named even differently, <laughs> whatever the name may be, somebody who is watching this show and looking at you and thinking, you know, in about 20 years from now, I hope that I can get to the same level with, with, my, with my business. What are three tips that you'd like to share that you've learned along the way that would be so incredibly valuable to that person? Uh, the first tip is always um, figuring out your why. Why are you doing this? Um, what's going to get you out of bed in the morning? What's, what's going to make you look at yourself in the mirror and be proud of what you did today? Um, that is key. There are a lot of people don't think about that. They just say, I'll do anything. You know, I just want to work. I love work. I love designing. I love creating. But it will wear off. It of will wear off because you get tired and, and you do it every day over and over <laughs> again. So you have to figure out what turns your crank. What, is, what gets you excited? What is the, what is the work that you would be proud to show your mom? I like that. So what is the work that you'd like to show your mom? Yeah, and whether you produce it or your team produces it, um, that you have to figure that out first. So that would be my first tip. Figure out what makes you you. The second one is to, um, is to treat it like a business. Treat your business like a business. Um, think about, learn about management styles. Learn about... Um, sales styles. Learn, learn as much as you can about how to run a good business and then figure out how you want to do it yourself. So that's really important. Um, and then lastly, um, try and do good. Try and leave the world a better place than, than when you started. Try and, try and do work that to your personal values is going to do good. So whether that's treating people well, whether that's, um, whether that's doing work that makes a difference, whether that's uh, being charitable in your community, um, try, try and leave the world a better place because after all, isn't that what business is all supposed to be about? Leave, leave legacy, right? Leave legacy, leave legacy behind. Legacy. Leave something that you can be proud of. I like that. Those are great tips. Thank you. Ben, um, thank you so <coughs> much for coming out. My pleasure. Thank the, you. This has been an incredible journey. It's always great to learn about a business that's, that's well defined. You know, it's, it's really nice to see somebody have really carved a niche out for themselves. Thank you. Uh, ben, thank you so much. Uh, this was uh, Ben Hagan of Intent uh, Design Communications Consultancy. Make sure to check him out online, subscribe, comment, and follow out on our show. If you wanted to follow Intent, uh, your handle is? For Good Intent. For Good Intent. Make sure to follow again, subscribe, and share to our channel. Make sure to follow, subscribe, and share for Good Intent. And guys, I'll see you in, what is it, next week? Next week.